You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast with daddy issues, in that this issue is about daddies. of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. And this one isn't just another one. This one is episode 150, which is pretty impressive because I didn't expect that I'd even make it to 50. <clears throat> and of course, this time we are going to be covering the Green Lantern comics, specifically the ones with some of my favorite characters in them, Kyle Rayner and Guy Gardner. And this one's specifically dealing with Kyle Rayner as the character of Ion. We're looking at the sort of final iteration of Kyle as Ion, as he decides to, well, try and figure out if he should change the world or whether or not he should give up his iron power. Plus, if you remember the last issue, he went to uh, look for his father as well, and we get a little introduction to uh, Kyle Rayner's dad. Issue 150 is a pretty much, well, I'm not going to bury the lead here. It's an excellent issue. And because this is such an excellent issue, I need to have someone to come on and share this issue with me. She is a person that you probably know from some of the great podcasts out on the internet, including the Shortbox Showcase and her own show, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show, Miss Emily Middleton. Hey, Emily, how's it going today? Hey, Sean. It's pretty good, pretty good. Lovely day here on the internet. Yes, yes it is, and it's a lovely day to cover this comic. Now, I know when I last had you on, it was kind of a meh episode because it was the Green Arrow Green Lantern crossover with not Green Arrow Green Lantern that you're accustomed to. Yeah. And at that time you said you would essentially fight anyone in order to come on for issue 150. And I'm glad you didn't have to fight anyone, but I'm also glad that you're here today to talk about this comic. Yeah, I I think I could have taken Shag. But uh, well, uh, some, some of the other Freaks and freak associated people might have been a challenge. You know, it's not really that difficult to beat up Shad. He won't listen to the show. Oh yeah, perfect. But uh, I'm really glad to have you on, and I'm really glad that we're going to get ready to cover this episode or this issue. Issue, so why not? But again, uh, at, like we always do, we're going to go ahead and take a little break here. We'll put in some promos, possibly one for a show that you do, Emily. Well, that would be a nice thing to do. And then when we get back on the other side, we'll start into our coverage of Green Lantern number 150. Excellent. Because we lost it all. Nothing lasts forever. I'm sorry, I can't be Perfect. Now it's just too late, and we can't go back. I'm sorry, I 
Here at Quark's, customer satisfaction is our primary concern. I'd say we just found our way into a wormhole. I'm Kira Norris. Lieutenant Commander Worf reporting for duty, sir. You're the best crew any captain ever had. This may be the last time we're all together. This will shortly become a leading center of commerce and of scientific exploration. Starfleet, one of our most important posts. It is quite simply, Commander, the journey you have always been destined to take. Sensors are not functioning. You've lost all contact with the space station. What the hell is happening out there? Shields up. <laughs> Damage report. Battle stations. I'm Captain Benjamin Sisko. Welcome to Deep Space Nine. Listen to the prophets. A Deep Space Nine Two True Freaks presentation with Sean Engel and Andrew Layla. And now with 100% more Paul Spataro. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. The Fantastic Arts is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. And this is Ultra Seven, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. 
Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search on iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. Okay, and we're back. So, uh, foregoing emails again, because I don't need to bore my wonderful co-host with uh, emails right now. I'm going to go ahead and jump right into coverage of Green Lantern number 150. This one was cover dated July 2002 and released on May 8th of 2002 with a cover price of 350 US and 575 in Canada. The title was Beginnings End and the writer of course again was Judd Winnick. Pencilers this time out were Pat Quinn for pages 1 through 11 and Dale Eaglesham for pages 12 through 38. The anchors were John Loth for the first few pages 1 to 11 and Rodney Ramos for 12 through 38. The colors for the book was Moose Bowman, the letterer was Kurt Hathaway, assistant editor was Nache Castro, the editor was Bob Shrek, and the cover art was by Jim Lee and Scott Williams. And the synopsis goes thusly. Our story begins many years ago as a survivor of a train crash discovers a glowing green lantern, one destined first to bring death, then life, then power. Luckily, the survivor caught it on the third try and used the lantern's power to fight evil as the first green lantern. Much later, a test pilot, Hal Jordan, is taken from his flight simulator and brought to the dying body of the alien Abin Sur, where he is chosen to become a member of the Green Lantern Corps. There, Jordan becomes one of the Corps' greatest warriors, but he's not the last one from Earth to wear the ring. We are then introduced to John Stewart, a willful black man who is chosen to be Hal's replacement and then eventual partner. Then there's Guy Gardner, by far the greatest Green Lantern of all time my opinion, who was, chosen to fight during, who was chosen during the crisis to fight on the side of the Guardians, and eventually got shafted by being written by people who thought of him only as a right-wing ass clown. The story concludes as a dark time came over the core, and how Jordan turned against them and became the despot Parallax. It is here where we see that all of these events were being viewed by Kyle Rayner, now known as the nearly godlike hero Ion. As Kyle observes the timeline, he is approached by the one who was once Parallax and now is the host for God's Spirit of Vengeance, the Spectre, Hal Jordan. The Spectre asks Ion if he's here to view the timeline or participate in it. Ion says that he's thinking about it, which the Spectre feels that he shouldn't do. Ion remarks at how the Spectre is unable to lie, mentioning that God's Hand of Wrath doesn't say that he can't do this, and that if he wanted to, he can change everything, bringing back Coast City stopping Hal from dying in the final night, and even returning him from being the Spectre. Nonplussed, the Spectre asks, where does it end? Does Ion now spend eternity undoing all the wrongs that have ever been? Ion replies, no. I'd just be doing this for you. Pausing, Hal tells Kyle that everything happens for a reason, and that even though he can change what happened, as a man, he does not know why it happened. And because he is a man, that should stay him from doing this. 
but as Hal fades away, he lets Kyle know that ultimately, the choice is his. But before Kyle makes that choice, he decides that it's time to meet with his long-lost father. Using his powers, Kyle appears outside an inconspicuous ranch-style home in Austin, Texas. After ringing the doorbell, Kyle is greeted by an unkempt man and a wife-beater in dirty sweatpants, who asks if he's here about buying the truck. Saying no, Kyle asks if the man's name is actually Aaron Rayner, and introduces himself as his son Kyle. Shocked, the elder Rayner invites his son in and asks how he was able to find him. Kyle tells him he did a lot of searching via friends in the government, but in reality he was able to use his ion powers to track his DNA to this point in less than 10 minutes. Opening up, Aaron starts telling his life story to Kyle, first starting with his name being Gabriel Vasquez and him being from Mexico, then going into his career in the military and meeting and marrying his mother, Mara. But as Ion, Kyle is able to tell that that story is a lie, and he knows the truth behind his father. He was in the military, but when he tried to get out from the covert operation he was involved in, the agency sent in people to take him out. Gabriel was barely able to fend them off, and realizing that he could, they would never stop hunting him, he concocted a plan to keep his wife and son safe. He intentionally beat her up, and then ran off, telling Mora to keep up the ruse that it was all his fault. The duo talked for a long time after that, eventually parting ways and promising that they will keep in touch. And as Gabriel returns to his home, we see that despite all of his efforts to keep his life secret, he couldn't stop from following the life of his son, secrets at all. Cut now to the newly reformed planet Oa, where Ion has summoned the last remaining guardian of the universe, Kanthet, into his presence. The diminutive Malthusian asks him why he was called here, and Ion says it's to witness the beginning. Using the immeasurable power within him, Ion reignites the central power battery on Oa, and brings back the guardians of the universe, this time as diaper-wearing toddlers. Overjoyed by the return of his brethren, Ganthet embraces the young guardians, as Kyle explains that in returning them, their spirits seemed youthful, like children. Now perhaps Ganthet can raise them in a different way, eschewing the mistakes that they made in the past, and become the father of the new guardians of the universe. Tears in his eyes, Ganthet thanks Kyle for giving him this opportunity, because being an immortal, he was unaccustomed to loss, and for the longest time, he was so lonely. But now he has a family to take care of, and instead of taking the Malthusian title of Elder, Ganthet settles on the more familiar name of Papu. Back at Kyle's apartment, he and Jenny are discussing the rebirth of the Guardians and his forfeiture of the Ion Power. Showing how things have changed, Kyle tosses his ring out the window and has it fly back to him with ease. He also shows Jenny his snazzy new Jim Lee-designed uniform, something which Jenny hardly approves of. Asking if he wants to test out the new look over the city that never sleeps, Jenny and Kyle head out into the skies of Manhattan, both ready to take on the world together. And that was the extra-sized issue 150 of Green Lantern. Emily, what are your thoughts on this? Well, before we get into thoughts, why don't you tell me a little bit about this book and uh, why you were so enthused about wanting to talk about this? Well, I'll, I'll, you didn't bury the lead earlier and said it's a very good issue. I'm going to go further and say this is my personal favorite single issue of a comic. Wow. And 
for me, it does everything that a single issue should do in giving a complete story, which is really helped by being extra sized. But it also just holds a very special nostalgic place in my heart because I've been reading comics for basically my whole life. Uh, the first comic books I ever remember reading were uh, my dad's copies of Sword of the Atom when I was like six. Mm-hmm. Good, good books. Oh, so good. Uh, and then the first comic trade, technically, that I ever owned was the JLA Midsummer Nightmare story oh, that's another, with Dr. Destiny. Also good quite story. good. Um, and I got that when I was like seven or eight. But the first comic that I ever picked out for myself off of a spinner rack in some truck stop travel place in the middle of nowhere on a road trip was this copy of Green Lantern 150, which I am currently holding in my hands. And I bought it for one reason and one reason only, and that is that it had Jon Stewart on it. Because I was not a big fan of Kyle. All I knew him from was that Midsummer Nightmare story, and he's kind of whiny in it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it, it just was not, it was not a good introduction. Like, you know, in the, the plot of that story is all about him feeling inadequate and everyone else having powers and he doesn't and sort of, oh, woe is me. But I was just really bored by him. But then I read this and got to really sort of know what Kyle was about as a character. And I mean, in, in a way, it's everything you need to know about Green Lantern. And for a long time, it was everything I knew about Green Lantern. As much as it would have been nice to start following this series, I didn't really have a ton of, you know, cash at the age of 11. But this this was my only Green Lantern experience until like, whatever, two years ago when I started reading the Denny O'Neill Green Lantern Green Arrow. And it, it, it teaches you everything you need to know. It's it's the introduction of all of the lanterns and how they relate and how the core works. And then this really moving story about fatherhood and what it means to be human and having power and all these sorts of great questions and great art. And it's just, it's, it's my favorite. Yeah, I, I have to agree. It does give you a wonderful synopsis of all of the iterations of Lantern, the nice little introductory pages where, where they sum up the histories of the character and, and in some ways expand on them and give you ideas of what these characters are like. And then it also is able, like you said, to, uh, you know, to, to delve into the idea of fatherhood and parenting and how important that is uh, in, in these characters' lives and in the lives of the Green Lantern uh, mythos as well, as we'll see at the end of the book with the Guardians coming back. And, you know, it's it's a spotlight on... Uh, and at this time, what would this be, 2002, about mm -hmm. about 65 years of uh, having Green Lantern around. So it's nice. It's just a nice culmination of all this. And the artwork inside of it is, is spectacular. I know Eagle Shant didn't get to draw Gorgeous. all of it. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, John Lowe, or not John Lowe, uh, Peter Quinn, who did mm -hmm. the first part of it, did a really good job as well. Uh, and I think... This is perhaps some of the most the most well written stories by Judd Winnick that I've seen so far in this. Winnick can be 
he can be he, he's not as controversial as a Grant Morrison or a Mark Millar, but he does have a tendency and some titles to just go off the rails. This I think is some superlative some superlative writing by him. Uh, I really enjoy it, and this is this is a great great culmination to the idea of what Winnick started with uh, the Kyle Rayner character and his sacrifice to try and bring back the core. And there's a lot of heady issues in there, and I, I can't wait to get uh, talking about them. Yeah, I'm not sure if there is a dialogue equivalent for Fighty McFightenstein, but that's basically what this entire story is. It's just people sitting around and talking. And the fact that it is, like, tense and engaging really does speak to how crazy good it's mm-hmm. written. Yes. Uh, the the writing, you know, it, it's a wonderful melding of a good story, good writing, and good artwork. I think I think mm-hmm. you nailed it. This is just a really superlative issue. Um, if you want to, well, let's uh, start out going through the book. Uh, the cover is by Jim Lee, and you can definitely tell it's by Jim Lee because, you know, the people have their shouty, scratchy faces. The only thing that I could say negative about this cover is Guy Gardner, unfortunately. That is not the Guy Gardner haircut. That's like the Ethan Hawke haircut. Oh, oh it is. Guy, Guy had <laughs> Guy at, from this point in time had the very stereotypical bowl haircut, which is yeah. you know you put the bowl in your head, cut everything off, and shaved on the sides. He he has the more very two thousands, you know, alternative hip look and uh, I just call it the bro cut. Yes, I think that's a that's an apt description of it. I mean, the, the, all the other characters look great. Alan looks great. John's neck is a little extended, but I think John looks good. He Ky- looks better than he did in the Oh, what was the issue where he was strapped into the chair? Oh, uh, oh ugh. the oh the one yeah, that was uh, 147 a while 147, back. 147, yeah. Yeah. That's that's the one I just listened to a yeah. few days ago when I was preparing for this and I looked up the cover. I was like, Oh God. Yeah. That, that cover, I like the detail on that cover, but I don't think Eagle Sham particularly got John down right. He, he looked a bit off, but I think he looks a lot better here and inside here it, the book. Here it actually looks like John. Hmm. And Hal looks good as well, but Hal's not hard to mess up. So no, nah, he's, you know, your, your standard hmm. looking hero dude. Um, moving into the book, we've basically got three sections of the book. We've got the sort of origins. We've got Kyle dealing. Well, we've got about four sections. The origins, Kyle dealing with the, the specter, Kyle dealing with his father, and then Kyle dealing with Oa. So starting out these first few pages where we get the origins of everyone, I really enjoyed that. I think it's nice that we get a look back at all of the iterations of the Earth Lanterns. And I think... Um, uh, Judd Winnick did a good job at telling them in a succinct way and also portraying the art. You know, the artist did a really good job at portraying them. Definitely. Uh, That's what stood out to me, um, especially with uh, the Alan Scott story, because I'd, I'd gone back and read his first appearance a couple of months ago. And the actual panel layouts and the, the pose that he strikes on the second page are like straight out of that first issue. Hmm. And it, it it just really sort of spoke to me of like, oh yeah, they're they're going back to the roots of these stories, and uh, just like the the shot in page one, panel one of the train uh, driving at, at or the the train on the tracks at that exact angle, and then the 
broken track and the glow in the distance. I was like, oh, this is all totally familiar. Yeah, I've got to go back and read those um, those those early Golden Age ones because that is the one spot that I'm kind of that, – that, that I don't have the most experience with is the Golden Age stuff. And I've seen uh, in the previous episode, which unfortunately hasn't come out yet – uh, we talked about uh, Green Lantern's Secret Files and Origins, and they were mm-hmm. able to get Martin Nodell to come in and draw a little short one-page origin thing uh, with Alan Scott. And at the time, in 2002, Martin Nodell was, had to be in his 80s, maybe even in his late 80s, but he still did an, a pretty good job of drawing Alan Scott. And I actually like... Martin Nodell's artwork from those early Green Lantern issues. They're, it's really its really nice. The one thing I will say is that uh, Alan's costume in none of those issues look near as good as it does on page three. I think that's the single best that Alan Scott in that outfit has ever looked. I, I, like, the, I like the look at it. I think uh, Quinn gets a good job of it. But one of the things that I'd always liked about the uh, Golden Age heroes was their costumes didn't, or their uniforms didn't look specifically like superhero uniforms. You get Batman and Superman, they look like stylized one-piece unitards with the characters from the JSA, like uh, Jay Garrick and Alan Scott, especially Jay Garrick. It looked like actual clothing rather than uh, a different type of uniform. And the only thing I could say negative about this is his pants look more like they're tights rather they're the than tights, pants. Yeah. So, but I, I love the boots. I love the puffy, the puffy sleeve shirt, even the ridiculously high collared purple cape. That beautiful, beautiful cape. It's, it's just, and it's the right length. You know, in previous issues, especially in the nineties, Alan's cake, went to almost spawn level of lengths and it got kind of ridiculous here. uh, Quinn does a good job of drawing him and Alan just looks really great. I agree with you here. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, this was the first time that I met him. So in my mind, this is what, this is what Alan Scott should always sort of look like Mm -hmm. the tight, tight pants and all. (laughs) Um, Moving on to the next page, page uh, four, we get the uh, sort of origin story of Hal Jordan now, I don't know if you have any knowledge of the story Emerald Dawn, which was the late 80s, early 90s retelling of the Green Lantern origin, or at least the Silver Age Green Lantern origin. Vaguely. Basically, I don't think I've read it. I think I have. Oh, I think I have the like the the animated movie version that they made a couple of years ago. Something like that. Basically, what happened in that, it's it's somewhat like the uh, um, not the Emerald Knights, but the. I, I can't remember what the name first flight. It's sort of like that. But what happens in it is Hal Jordan is having this test flight and he goes out, he, he finds out that he's going to be let go from Ferris aircraft. So he goes out with some friends and goes drinking and he crashes his car and injures some people because, mm-hmm. uh, comics, I guess. Yeah. But unfortunately, you know, because he was a drunk driver, that tainted people's feelings of him and everything, at least mm. in the comics community. And here he mentions that, you know, um, I shouldn't have left the hospital. And I'm wondering if that is a callback to that storyline because oh. Hal was injured in that crash and he did 
he he didn't have to stay in the hospital, but one of his friends that was injured with ended up dying. So that sort of led to a couple of stories, uh, Emerald, Emerald Dawn 1 and Emerald Dawn 2, which dealt with how dealing with the fallout from this accident and then him becoming Green Lantern and everything. So I thought that was kind of interesting there. Yeah, interesting. But this is this is uh, just basically a retelling of Hal's origin story, him being the in the flight simulator and it getting taken out to the uh, spacecraft in the middle of the desert where he meets with Abin Sur. You know, I uh, Abin looks a little off. Yeah, he doesn't look as much like Abin Sur as he does just random bald guy who's been colored pink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there's not as much of an alien look to him. You know, aside from the pink skin color, he could be, yeah, any random bald guy, I agree. He could be Lex Luthor, for all we know, like. <laughs> oh, I bet I bet Clark would be so excited if Lex Luthor accidentally got a chunk of metal rammed through him and died. <laughs> oh, oh, well, I, he, he wouldn't say it out loud, but secretly inside, he'd be going, yes! <laughs> um, I didn't do it. Not my fault. Uh, I I couldn't have saved him. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry, Lex. Sorry. Oh, I had um red kryptonite poisoning or something. <laughs> I, I, <coughs> I completely forgot. Yeah, I was I couldn't have made it there. Um, my next note's not uh, not until page seven, and I love the introduction of John on this page. I do as well. And this is this is the way I imagine. This is the way I most envision John prior to the sort of revamp that we had with the Justice League Unlimited cartoon or the Justice League cartoon where they made him more of a a military guy. This is and and I wanted to get your opinion on this since you're going to be eventually covering the uh, Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams, Green Arrow, Green Lantern and how you felt mm-hmm. this take of uh John Stewart was. Uh well, I definitely like this version and I I basically like all versions of uh of John Stewart's introduction cuz they all just say slightly different things in a way about how i guess about how black people were perceived at their various times i i, I don't know like i i like his introduction story but there are some uh, questionable motivations well, in the early 70s version I like this version. I like that he still has the afro. I, I love any time we get John Stewart flashbacks that involve an afro. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mind him being a military man either. I mean, that was the that was the way that I knew him when I picked up this book. And that's that that is the only reason I picked it up because the two people that are most visible, if you've got this cover sitting on a a newsstand, is you can't even see Kyle. So I decided I wanted the book, pulled it up, realized Kyle was on the cover too. I was like, eh, whatever. <laughs> sure, I'll sure I'll take it. And then John's in it for all of like, you know, four panels or something. Yeah, but I, I agree. The the O'Neill Adams run is pivotal. It is it is an essential part of the Green Lantern mythos. But viewed through modern eyes, it does often come off as very Heavy handed. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, going back and looking at it at the time it was happening and looking at the connotations of that time, how limited you could be by the comics code to actually exactly. approach these types of uh, stories, it was very groundbreaking for uh, O'Neill and Adams to do this. So, right. and it, I'm if, glad that, that, that they don't just sort of jettison that, that even though this is a more modern version, he's not quite as much the like 
you know, as the police sort of mm-hmm. almost in that story, nice pseudo Black Panther sort of guy. Yeah, he's 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 not that in this. He's more of just kind of like a little bit of a punk. But they still keep the line with uh, or the, the the conversation with Hal and the Guardian saying we are not interested in your petty bigotries. Hey, that's not what I meant. It's just obvious he has a chip on his shoulder the size of the Rock of Gibraltar, which is one of my favorite lines. Like, that's mm-hmm. just such a ridiculous 70s line. And sort of like the uh, panel layouts in the Alan Scott uh, retelling, the fact that they kept that line from the, the Denny O'Neill story, it just sort of speaks to this continuity and this sense of, like, respect and trying to incorporate everything that is in the mythos and celebrate all of it yes and then and that's a good thing because the unfortunate thing that i've seen especially with the character of john stewart is that he tends to get repurposed whenever a new creator comes in on the story yeah with with even with characters like guy and kyle and how their stories are pretty much set but people tend to not really know what to do with john and i'm glad that winnick is at least trying to keep some of the continuity and some of the history of the character in there while advancing him and trying to sort of minimize the heavy handedness that came about in the seventies uh, version of the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next page we get to, of course, my favorite green lantern, which is Guy Gardner. I like the, I like the admission that the crisis happened and this mm-hmm. is why Guy Gardner basically came around and I realize that, you know, Guy Gardner pretty much for the majority of his time in, you know, the Green Lantern comics and in Justice League International was written as a giant jerk. And I didn't feel that way about him because I read the the Guy Gardner ongoing and Bo Smith writing him and how he took the character from being just kind of a jerk to, to to fleshing him out but i do love that fourth panel on the page where it's guy you know sitting lean back in batman's chair yep being fanned by by a ring construct of power girl while being served beer by wonder woman uh, that's it makes me smile in the sort of goofy arrogance that guy is portraying in here yeah and i think that you know especially with guy he gets three panels john gets four that even though they are so concise they still manage to give them sort of differentiated personalities without them being i don't know too too much of like a stereotype or too much of like like pigeonholing their character because they're able to just go alan noble spirit and indomitable will Hal, quick-tempered and headstrong. John, persistent in questioning. Guy, egotist and rogue. And I was like, I, I, I appreciated that they were able to celebrate. Yes, they're all heroes, and they're also all very different characters, even though they didn't have much space to do it. And yeah, that that fourth that fourth panel, I think, is just, you know, that's that's what I think of when I think of Guy. He's kind of a jerk, a little bit of you know, a, a sexist and a punk and kind of a, an ass at times. But like when the chips are down, you can count on him. Agreed. Well, and I think I think that's what uh, Thomas DJ has talked to me about the character of Guy Gardner. And he, he quotes a line, I think, from the second Die Hard movie where 
Um, it's a scene between Bruce Willis and the engineer who was helping it, the African-American engineer. And Bruce Willis tells the guy, I'm sorry I called you an asshole. And the engineer replies, no, no, no. I am an asshole. I'm just your kind of asshole. <laughs> and that's how there I've always viewed Guy Gardner. He is he is our kind of asshole. And I think, yeah, they, they within just a few panels, they were able to define these characters, give a bit of their history. And, you know, the, the fact that they were able to do it through storytelling and art in this short amount of time, you know, really says something about how well thought out this book is. Um, moving on to the next page, we've got essentially what happened in Emerald Twilight, how losing his losing his mind over the destruction of Coast City, going to Oa, fighting Sinestro, and becoming Parallax. And, you know, that that is also pivotal in not only the Green Lantern story, but in the start of Kyle Rayner's story. Mm-hmm. Did you have any uh, notes on that page or anything? Um, Just a little bit more sort of, you know, personal feelings and history. Um, because this was the way that I found out that Parallax happened uh and about post parallax hal jordan aka the specter aka Mm -hmm. one of my favorite characters so because of this story whenever i went back and read earlier stories with hal or modern stories that featured him i always kind of had the parallax end game in mind so i get that for some people that parallax ruined green lantern but this is actually part of what makes him my favorite character. Now, granted, the, you can have quibbles with the story itself and why did it drive him crazy? That doesn't make sense. But as a character, I thought it actually made him a lot more interesting. Uh, the fact that even though he is, you know, some some people describe him as like the boring flyby and he flyby, the boring flyboy, and he's just. You know, he's almost like a Superman-esque, just a Boy Scout and stuff. But in my mind, he, because I knew that this happened, the, the idea that he's not perfect and that he can seriously, seriously screw up and then be punished for his mistakes and still come out of that a hero again was part of why I loved him so much. So uh, this just sort of shaped my, you know, understanding of how a lot. And so I... I, I I like it. Okay. Yeah, I, I agree. A lot of people obviously were annoyed by the turn of Hal Jordan into this character of, of Parallax and what became of him for that. But I think eventually his redemption and the, I don't know if it's an irony or the fact that he actually had to become a new hero in the guise of the specter was a nice way for him to follow a sort of redemptive path. And, you know, obviously when you are related to God, the one true almighty deity God in air quotes, everything, you know, that is, that is capital G God. Yes. That, you know, having, having a redemptive arc being the person who has to be God's spirit of vengeance is a kind of, kind of interesting path you could take a character who you know basically turned evil so i i like i also enjoy i need to get the uh issues of the specter and see if i can read those because i've heard they're they're pretty good yeah i 
I really don't have any interest in going back and actually reading the stories with Parallax because I have this. Like, mm-hmm. the story itself, as far as I'm aware, is pretty poorly written, but the concept I really like as, like, a, a motivating factor and a part of a character's history. But I don't really ever feel the need to know more about it than I know from these five panels. Yeah, I think, uh, once again, I think they do a good job of summing up what happened in the Emerald Twilight storyline in these five panels. So if if you don't feel the need to go back and read that story, you've got a pretty good synopsis of what's going on here. Right. After that, I got to page 12, and this is where the book takes a very heady, very metaphysical uh, turn with these two beings with almost godlike power and what they plan on doing with the power, or basically whether or not Kyle should do what he's planning on doing with his power, and Hal is the specter trying to talk him down of it. And I I like on page 12 that that Kyle mentions it's not that he... Kyle mentions that the specter says it's not that you can't do all these things to change history, it's that you shouldn't do them. And I like the aspect of that, that Hal is the specter who is knowledgeable of the deity, capital G, God, realizes that this kind of immeasurable power probably isn't in... It's not that Kyle is not trying to do the right thing, but should Kyle try and do this thing? What are your thoughts on this, or on these pages? I really enjoyed it. There was this very strong sense of symmetry throughout most of this book, but really strongly in this section that you've got two, we will say former lanterns who are now nigh infinite cosmic, almost all powerful beings having a discussion of morality and what it means to be moral. And I love this sort of heady stuff. There's just raising a lot of interesting questions about what it means to be moral and what it means to be human. And if they're necessarily connected, that even though you have all of this power, Kyle, you're still a man or you are as long as you act like one. If you start doing these things that are sort of beyond human knowing that you have no business dealing with time, you shouldn't mess with it because it's in a way not appropriate and it, it, it would in some way take your humanity. Just, I love time travel. I love discussions about morality. I love discussions of ethics. And if you could have the ethics of time travel, I am, I'm absolutely down for it. Mm-hmm. There was also, um, oh, where was it? It's one. Oh, yeah. Um, and I, I really liked it just says a lot about Kyle's character as opposed to Hal, something that they'd mentioned in the earlier sections when we saw Hal as Green Lantern and Parallax was that he's kind of arrogant, that hubris is sort of his fatal flaw. And so when he's having this whole discussion with Kyle and warning him and saying, where does it end? 
can you just go on rewriting all of history? It's too much power. It's too much responsibility. And Kyle says, no, I would only do this for you. Really sort of underlines the two of them as characters. And you get a, a moment where the the specter looks down and his eyes are covered. And to me, that just very much spoke to him sort of having an emotional moment of, oh, right, Kyle's in some way a little bit better than me, that he wouldn't be corrupted by this in the same way that I would. You still shouldn't do it. It's, you know, morally questionable, but it's not as dangerous in a way that Kyle wouldn't want to go on and just rewrite all of history and fix everything the way that Hal would, that he would actually reach for more power, where Kyle's just like, no, I just want my friend to not be in pain. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a very noble thing. But even even as we see in that, as 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 Hal thinking about, I could have everything I wanted back. I could have my life as a Green Lantern back. I could have Coast City back, all the friends that I've loved back. Even then, he realizes and comments in the rest of the story that there's a plan. There's a purpose to everything. And I. I enjoyed these kind of discussions, not only, you know, with with people, but in comics as well, of the idea. And I think you touched on it uh, when you were talking on the Shortbox Showcase a while back about the idea in Constantine about predestination and free will. And this kind of surmises that there is a bit of predestination in the world, but I don't think it necessarily eliminates the idea of free will it just says that there is a plan to what's going on in the universe and if you try and alter that it's going to mess things up more than it would fix them and i i I like that how as this person who has an obvious connection to the capital g god is the one who has to spell this out for Kyle, a person who has powers on the level of near godhood, who doesn't have this knowledge, who doesn't have this knowledge that there is a plan, there is a way things should be ordered out. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, what what I the, these questions of predestination and free will are fascinating to me. So I think probably my favorite single interact like discussion that sums up why I love this conversation is when Kyle says, what, are you telling me that you were supposed to become parallax, that your city would die, the world loses you, all of this was predestined? And then the specter replies, no, I am telling you, you do not know that despite the great power you wield, you are but a man, and that alone should stay your hand. Mm-hmm. That sort of just complex understanding of knowing and not knowing that the specter isn't even really saying yes this was predestined or no this wasn't predestined just saying that you don't know and it's in a way not appropriate or right for you to know and and because you don't know that should be the reason that you shouldn't try to do this you know he's not saying that yes this is predestined and this is what we have to follow and this is what we have to do. But he's saying because there is so much, even though you are this powerful, because you do not understand this power or you do not completely understand this power, your use of it 
shouldn't be to this extent. And th this is just some really great writing from Judd Winnick in this story. And I, I love it when when writers are able to touch on these heady concepts and make you actually think in comic books. This was just amazing. Agreed. After that, um, we get into a more Earthbound dilemma with Kyle uh, going to encounter his father. And this this part of the story, I think, is nice because throughout the run of Kyle Rayner's book, his father wasn't really his father wasn't there, but the the story is never really centered around Kyle being worried about his father not there. It come up every once in a while uh, during the first crossover between Green Lantern and Green Arrow. The in the with Kyle Rayner and Connor Hawk, he went in search of his father and found like his uncle or something who was running an arms deal and trying to. Uh, fire a missile into Washington, D.C. or something like that. Mm. Uh, and, and you got the idea that Kyle's father was absent for the majority of his life. I like the fact that he's gone to search down his father, and I like the theme of parental, you know, of, of having a father and having a father figure in the book sort of running through the rest of the story here. Um, yeah. I'm I'm a lot of as someone I think again it was Thomas DJ he told me that eventually it was retconned to say that Kyle's father was Hispanic or Mexican. Mm -hmm. I don't I'm not bothered by that, but I don't know why that had to be in there. It's just one of those things where it's like okay, well that's an interesting storyline. Um, I really don't have any specific notes between here. Did you have any on the 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 story part about uh, Kyle and? Him meeting his father? Uh, the the only notes I have through this were sort of artistic. Um, the actual artist swapped over right at the start of the uh, Spectre and uh, Kyle discussion. But it was during during this section that I really noticed that the art had changed. And I really, really liked it. Um, especially uh, a little thing that I noticed was that uh, pages, what is it, 20 through 21, where Gabriel is telling his version about why he left Kyle and his mom and, you know, taking, taking the blame and all of this. Uh, then that, that whole section, the flashbacks are sepia toned. Then for 23 and 24, we see the reality when Kyle starts digging around in his dad's brain a little bit and all of them are tinted slightly green, which I just thought was sort of interesting of in of it almost being like a construct and just sort of showing that Kyle's using his power to, yeah. like, to get this information. Yeah, I didn't really catch that. But if you look at uh, if you also look at that, not only the sepia tone of the artwork there, but the uh, the uh, dialogue boxes that they have. Yeah, when he when Kyle is narrating the dialogue boxes where it's his father's retelling of the flashback, oh, they're a yeah, little bit blue. Blue and squared off blue. instead of the. And when it's when it's uh, Kyle relating it, when it's Kyle sort of mind reading him, they're they're more green. So I didn't I didn't even notice that. I noticed the sepia tone obviously from the color, but yeah, that's an interesting catch there. But yeah, this basically tells that Kyle's father was a member of. 
some covert military team. He was. I a, think it's specifically the CIA. Yeah, and he was a paid assassin. Met his wife in in Belfast. They emigrated. Uh, they wanted him back into. They wanted to put him back into service after he retired and took a desk job. He said no, and they put out some killers after him. So in order to make sure the, you know, eventually once the killers tried to take him down, he took all of them out and then went on the run. And then in order to keep his family safe, he concocted the story of him beating his wife and her kicking him out. And, you know, it's, it's an interesting telling of the story and it's, it's rather tragic. And at the end of it, you realize that his father Although he kept himself hidden from Kyle all this time, he never ignored Kyle. And I like the fact that on, where is it, on page 27, I guess, Mm -hmm. we see that his father has been keeping a scrapbook of all the things that Kyle has been doing. And that he, as much as he wanted to stay away from Kyle for his own, for his own preservation, yeah. That he he wanted to make sure that he kept up on Kyle, and not only did he know about Kyle as a child and Kyle doing his artwork in Feast magazine, but he was also aware that Kyle was Green Lantern as well. And you know, it's it it it's an interesting little bit of storytelling in here, and it's nice that Kyle finally gets to connect with his father. And I'm hoping that, you know, we'll see a bit more of his father in the uh, ongoing story. I, like I said, I haven't read the uh, stuff after this, but I'm looking forward to see what happens with uh, Kyle and his father after this. Yeah, definitely. In my, there's a, a really common trope of absentee or dead fathers for superheroes. And especially so in the DC universe, mm-hmm. but really, you know, depending on which continuity and which version of which characters, Superman is kind of the only person who has an active, involved, loving father. Yep. And so I like when there are present, involved fathers who know their children's secret identities. Mm-hmm. Like, that's why Joe West is my favorite character on The Flash, hands down. Mm-hmm. And why my biggest problem with Identity Crisis is that they killed Jack Drake. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree. That was that was really wonderful that they had a character, especially a character in Batman, because Batman and his family seems to be stricken by members of the family who lose their parents. Mm-hmm. So them having, you know, Tim being a person who had an active father who knew that he was out there as Robin was was a nice change up for that. And the fact that you know, his father did have to die off on Identity Crisis, which, you know, uh, I also I want to credit you guys for doing that. Identity Crisis, oh, thank and you. your coverage of that was just awesome. And it made me get out and read my trade of that again and realize yes. how how soul-crushing parts of that story was. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I wasn't there. I picked it up long after it came out, so I wasn't there when it came out to get frustrated about the whole darkening in the DC universe that a lot of people have claimed that it did, but reading it afterwards and reading it when I did, I thought it was just a powerful story. And Oh my God, that ending. Yeah. That is, that is one of the best, you know, tear up endings. I think you'll find in any comic. And, you know, at, 
and page 27 of, of this issue does not get quite that many feels, but it actually does come really close for me that every time I see him, uh, Gabe, that is, every time I see Gabriel looking at the picture, panel of his face, another picture, panel of his face as he starts to cry, and then the revelation that he knows his son is Green Lantern as he just lays back and cries with the scrapbook cuddled up to his chest. I just, oh, it kills me. Well, and that, that he, he, it shows that even though he, it shows that he misses his son. He mm-hmm. wished that he could have been a part of his life, but because he wanted to keep his son safe, he felt the need to stay away from him. And it's, it's done very powerfully throughout the art here. There's no dialogue and the artwork is just, is just phenomenal. It's yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, after that, we move on to the last bit, uh, page 28. Here's, uh, one thing I'm kind of glad, uh, again, it hasn't come out. I think it'll be coming out, uh, this Friday is at the time of recording. There was a larger than prestige format book. It was basically a, a full on like 108 page graphic novel entitled the last will and Testament of Hal Jordan. And I had almost thought about not covering it because it's a 108 page novel and that's a lot of stuff to get through. But I did go and cover it, and basically it was the uh, the other reason I didn't really want to cover it was because it dealt with Tom Kalmaku throughout most of the story, and Tom Kalmaku is essentially you know the analog of Jimmy Olsen to you, but with a really uncomfortable racially based name. mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm. yeah, the idea that he was called for the longest time Pie Face was not. (laughs) <laughs> not really my favorite aspect of dealing with the character but this story to sort of summarize it dealt with tom having to adopt hal jordan's illegitimate son okay yeah let that sink in unfortunately hal jordan's illegitimate son was just a construct of hal's ring and in the end, Hal's illegitimate son brought the planet Oa back. Yeah. Okay. It, yeah. It, it wasn't that great a story, but at least I'm glad that I covered it because it sets up this. Because I I knew Oa and the Guardians came back, but I didn't know how. I thought Kyle might have done it. But unfortunately, it was done in that book, which wasn't all that good. Well, you know, we have this book. It's ex- it's explained in an editor's note, and we never need to read that other one again. <laughs> oh, if only I had only read this editor's note before that. I <laughs> You're like, oh, that's all I need to know? Sweet. Uh, well, my, my bad. Um, but here we get... yourself some pain. Well, uh, you know, I, I suffer from my art. Um, but I'm glad that we get here. Kyle coming to realize that he can do some good with his ion power and essentially reigniting the central power battery on Oa that was recreated in a book that we shall not mention and bringing back the guardians. I love this. Yeah. 27 is always the page where I start getting a little choked up 
And by 31, where the, the baby starts spilling out of the lantern and you see Ganthet starting to cry, I'm like, oh, 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 old comic books are so dusty, aren't they? Oh. <laughs> There's so much. I should have dusted a little in the room before. I... No, yes, this is just wonderful. And the images of Ganthet seeing the Guardians pop out of a lantern and then being just these little cherubic young children who just jump on him and he the on page where is it? i can't some of these pages are now i want to say page yeah, most 30, of them aren't numbered where he's hugging that one and tears are just streaming down uh, his face. 32 yeah that's it and it says oh you've returned to me that is just eagle sham just knocks it out of the park with getting the emotions right on this character's face mm-hmm. and the idea that the guardians are back but they're back as children and they're going to allow Ganthet to kind of teach them in the way to be better than they were before. I think that's a I think that's a great way to start up to give a beginning to an idea of a possible new core if they ever want to do that. I, I love that I that Kyle decided to use his power to essentially to help Green Lantern because the guardians are an important part of the Green Lantern mythos and their idea of trying to maintain order and keep peace in the galaxy was somewhat wrongheaded and led to their downfall. And Kyle's gaining of this power, him delivering that back to sort of rebuild them and bring them back is, is an important part of this tale. And I really, really enjoy it. Mm hmm. I mean, this, in my opinion, this story just gets better the more times you read it because you notice different things. The first time you're just reading for the story, the second time you notice more of the character beats, the third time you pick up on the art, and then you sort of get these symmetries that I was mentioning earlier that this this sequence with Ganthet is, you know, completely a, a parallel to Gabe Vasquez and what he feels he has lost and being lonely, but then being reunited and what that means to be a father and to take care of someone. And it, it's, it's got all of those things, but then there, there is almost even a sort of a wider parallel of having uh, this, this concept of second chances that we've been talking about, Hal and his fall and his now second chance as the spirit to try the spirit as the specter to try and and do some good again. And here we have the guardians who are basically, again, given a second chance, but this time to start over, maybe a little bit humbler, a little bit more aware of what it means to actually care for the the mortal races rather than just being an immortal, you know, power seeing over everything and just dictating the rules without understanding the emotions behind it. You know, like questions about immortality and loneliness can feel really pretentious uh, or really esoteric and not connected really to anything. But when you take a sequence like this and really tie it to family and what it means to have really in Ganthet's case, his entire race returned to him to no longer be the last of his kind. It, it really just gets this, I don't know, this, this more grounded 
sort of context. You know, as, as soon as you've got kids frolicking around and being adorable, it means something a little bit more. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree. And they, they capture it really well uh, on page, page 34. You mentioned being a race, you know, Ganthet mentions being a race of immortal, you know, we're unaccustomed to loss. And he mentioned that I've been so very lonely. The fact that he was the last of his kind, the, the last person of this immortal race to exist, and he had no one to relate to him. Now that he has the ability to be a father and a caretaker of all of these people, all of these young people who are just like him has got to be just a complete relief to him and a complete joy to him. And I, I love the fact that he eschews the old ways of, you know, having the, uh, the children address him as elder or some sort of noble title and he goes with the more traditional Earth name of Papu, which is it's just so cute. It's it's just it's... adorable, and oh. and it, it sets up that that Ganthet is going to try and make the Guardians. Uh, you know, I, uh, it would be wrong to say a bit more human, but to be a bit more, a, a bit less strict, a bit less like the old Guardians that were so against emotion try and allow them try and teach them a new way and i think this is a great start to it and to to, to hear the little kid guardians call him papu and it's just wonderful oh i don't know why but i sort of read well i actually do know why i i read ganthet with a sort of weirdly a, a, like a little bit of a british accent or something mostly because of that right there you will call me papu Papu, yes, very good. <laughs> <laughs> just, it's it's still so stoic, but it's so different. It's yes. so it's still it's it's so warm and loving. It's, it's well, so and cute. Ganthet, as one of the one of the old guard of the Guardians of the Universe, was the more he he was the less straightforward he was less straightforward he was more forward thinking he was the more out there guardian as you can tell by his ponytail because you know, yes because ponytails are hip and cool but Small uh party in the back <laughs> but uh he was the one he, you know he was the last of the guardians and I, I like that he's now going to be the one who's going to bring forth the guardians in a new era and try to make them more relatable and everything until Jeff Johns comes in and does whatever he wants with them. Yeah. I, yeah. Well, I said that. And, uh, I shouldn't say that because I don't hate Jeff Johns, but Jeff Johns does, you know, I, to, to pull back the curtain, I also did a commentary. Well, not really a commentary, but a discussion of the uh, uh, 2011 Green Lantern movie with a certain podcaster. And I found a lot of good things to like in the movie except the things that Jeff Johns put in the movie. And mm. those were the things that I felt were the most negative. So sometimes I think the biggest problem is that the character's name is Hal, not Kyle. Well, that, that could be it as well, but that's problem one. Yeah. But speaking of Kyle, we get back to uh, Kyle back in his apartment. I really don't have any last notes on this. The, the artwork is okay. They finally, you know, Eagle Sham has had some, ups and downs in drawing Jenny. A lot of times he draws her, you know, too stylized and too skinny. I think the one point where she's looking out the window, there's a, yeah, that's a little uncomfortable there. 
Yeah. But in general, you know, she doesn't look there. There was one scene in the first time that Eagle Sham drew her where she looked emaciated, where it looks like you could wrap your hand around her waist and she at least looks physically fine. She looks like a very thin person, but she still looks like a person. Yes. Yeah. And that's that's a lot of times in comics. They will when when they're doing their women figures, they will be far too stylized and far too top heavy and have no waist and way too large hips and no room for their organs. Yes. Luckily that's not the case here to, to a, to a most of the extent. Um, the splash page where Kyle puts on his new uniform, really nice art. I don't know how I feel about the uniform yet. The buckles and stuff around his boots and all that. Eh. I really like his outfit. It but may t- it may take me some get some getting used to, but go ahead. I think ninety five percent of that is because I really, 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 really hate his iconic outfit. Understandable. Like, I just loathe it. I loathe everything about it. His mask is stupid. The white on his chest doesn't work. I don't like the yin yang symbol. It's off center. I mean, it's just every every single thing that is in that costume, in my opinion, is just wrong. And so when he can get this where it looks it looks more like the lantern uniform where it's got the green chest and the black arms, the green gloves, there's very little white on it. I kind of like the combat boots. Like there's a certain point where you've just got to accept it's 2002. We're still, you know, got a little bit of 90s on us. There's going to be some things that are just they're going to slip through the cracks and you just kind of got to roll with it. The only thing that I kind of think is weird are his weird, like arm and leg ridges. Yeah. I don't, I first thought they were more buckles up his legs, but no, there's just like ridges. It's, it's weird. But aside from that, like the actual proportions and the color and stuff, I think is way better. And he doesn't have the stupid, 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 stupid mask. (laughs) Hey, it was the 90s. You have to forgive us. We, well, we... you know what? Now it's 2000. He can get a normal person's mask and actually look <laughs> like an adult. Okay, well, there you go. Uh, but then, you know, they just uh, they decide to go flying off into the night. And uh, I think that's a great way to end the book. You know, Kyle, has, he's given the Guardians a new existence. He's used his power in a way that has affected something for good, but hasn't rewritten history. Mm-hmm. And he's he started out fresh. He's still Green Lantern, and it's a new direction for him. So this has been, you know, from, from the beginning of the Ion storyline in 146, after he fought Nero and gained the power, we saw some changes. We saw him have to struggle with dealing with all of these um, you know, all of these massive worldwide problems and even off-world problems. And now we're going to see him once again as Green Lantern. And it'll be interesting to see where things go. I, I'm glad he... I'm, I'm glad things worked out this way because I I was kind of concerned with Kyle attempting to do godlike things as a human, seeing how that might... how that might fall back on him and how that might 
come back on him and bite him in the ass, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I like that he was able to get his almighty near godlike power to do something good, but not to rework history in a way that Hal had tried to do. Yeah. Um, do you want to go through now, since you've got the book, do you want to go through any of the ads? Oh, one of the things that I didn't mention on the cover here, my cover is actually signed by Judd Winnick. Oh, Unfortunately, my cover is falling off, oh. which is not nearly as interesting. See, the unfortunate thing it's, it's, is it's signed to Charlie, which oh. uh, because uh, I bought this off Charlie Niemeyer. Thanks, Charlie. So um, <laughs> he he uh, he sold me this copy, but it's signed by Judd Winnick regardless. Do you want to go through and check out some of the ads while we've got a little time? Uh, sure. I okay. don't have much to say about most of them because yeah. they're basically all video game yeah, ads. That's the same. There's uh, the front intro or the front inside cover is for Total, the I guess a racing game. There's a ton of those. There's another ad for Starburst with uh, some young lady jamming her mouth full of Starburst candy. There you go. Another that, that face is terrifying. It, it is will haunt my nightmares. Well, and then the next page is even worse, where it's got the uh, the Ooh. Rock as the uh, Scorpion King in a uh, Game Boy Color game. That was an aw- that was an awful movie, and a CGI that might have been better on the Game Boy Color than there was in the movie. Ooh. Um, there's. R Zone, which I guess is something at Toys R Us where you can buy games for the different consoles. I don't know. Ads pretty much now are all video games, including the next one, which is for Yu-Gi-Oh! for the Game Boy Color and PlayStation. Mm. Yeah, I I was all about that show, but never played the card games, never played the video games, never had any desire to. Yeah, and then there's more. It's pretty much all video games. It's Gauntlet... Dark Legacy, which is another, you know, sort of uh, third-person game rather than the top-down gauntlet game. Uh, more Dragon Justice League. Oh yeah, we've got the Justice. Let me get to that page. Yes, the Justice League uh, premiere movie. The this is the Bruce Tim version of the Justice League. Bruce Tim and Paul Dini. This is. Perhaps some of the best iterations of these characters. I don't want to say ever written, but but it's it's up there. Yes, it's, it's really good. And uh, some people may complain that they didn't get Tim Daly to come in and do the voice of Superman, but I thought after a while George Newbern did a great version of Superman. Of course, getting Kevin Conroy to play Batman again was superlative always wonderful and you know all all the character and all the characters got their own storyline and it, it even advanced into when they went into the justice league unlimited it was just some mm-hmm. great stuff there uh, are so many so many great adaptations of comics like so many comics that i first encountered in that show mm-hmm. and uh fantastic uh after that there's another advertisement for some dc animated stuff with the i guess i don't know if this uh uh, first, this would be like the first couple of episodes of the Batman Adventures show, but then they've got uh, DVDs for uh, Mr. Freeze, uh, Batman and Mr. Freeze Sub-Zero, and the Batman Superman movie. I haven't seen the Batman Superman movie, but I saw, pardon me, most of the Mr. Freeze one. That was pretty good. Yeah, the just just judging from the um, 
the case art. It's the later version of, uh, of the Batman animated series, which had the redone Joker, which just aesthetically I never was interested in. That's about when I stopped watching Batman and then just jumped straight over to Justice League. Yeah, I think that was when it got picked up by the WB and it mm-hmm. was, it kind of got revamped by them. There's another video game ad for Crash Bandicoot. I could care less. Um, after that, that brings us to the to the um, the letters page. And you said you had something interesting here on the letters page you wanted to talk about. Uh, yes. When I was uh, reading through this and taking some notes, I handed it to my dad at one point just to say, uh, you know, make sure I didn't miss anything really obvious. And he went and turned over to the letters page, and halfway through, sort of stopped and looked at the book and backed up and looked at it again and handed me one of the letters, which was from Paterboy via AOL, P-A-E-T-E-R. And he he looked at me and said, that has to be Pater Franson, doesn't it? And we checked, and it is indeed Pater Franson of the Spirit Blade Underground podcast, who is a huge Green Lantern nerd and did manage to get one of his letters into the comic. So we we realized that somebody that we knew had gotten into the letters page. And since I was here, I was like, well, let's take the uh, take the chance to pimp him and his show. And, you know, I, I just wanted to point that out because I thought that was that was what? cool. But, but- comic, comic books has always been a sort of insular, small community. It's just the Internet has made it a lot more obvious how small that community is and how easy it is to know people who know people. Yep. Well, that's cool. I'm going to have to check out. I'm going to have to check that stuff out. There's, there's just more stuff that I need to get listening to. Yeah. Um, back inside cover really don't care about back outside cover is, I guess, Matt Hoffman doing a stunt on his bicycle and pouring out chocolate milk. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, like I said, Emily, this was a great, great issue i'm glad that i got to read it and i'm glad i got to read it with you i'm glad that you got to come on and share your opinion of this this was a great conversation i am so glad that this issue holds up because i was really really nervous when i went back and reread it that it was not going to hold up as much as it did when i was 11 and it does and then some mm-hmm. there there's a lot to chew on in this there's there's a lot of good there's a lot of good story element there's a lot of good things to think about uh, Winnick does a good job uh, in bringing the characterization of these characters who are father figures and what they have to deal with. It's just, it's storytelling. It's really good storytelling. So yeah. Um, since you are also doing things on the internet, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell people where they can find you and uh, what you're doing out there on the web. All right. Well, I am the host of Uncovering the Bronze Age, all about DC comics from the 1970s with a special emphasis on social issues and whatever tends to catch my sociological fancy, which means that we will be getting to Green Lantern, Green Arrow, and Denny O'Neill at some point, hopefully shortly. I'm looking forward to that. I am also really looking forward to it. I was thinking that my first issue out was going to be uh, actually the first appearance of Jon Stewart, but I was like, "Uh, I'm going to try and find one or two more lighthearted issues before I delve right back into racism. I didn't want to do that right after coming out from, you know, the comics code, have another weighty discussion. Mm -hmm. But we'll get back to that at some point. 
I also co-host the Shortbox Showcase with my dad, Professor Allen, where we talk about topics in comics, everything from continuity to parallel universes, the state of fandom, and my unending disdain for Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> oh, Michael and uh, Michael Bradley! I know I'm making right Michael Bradley cry, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Like every time I say that, I now have to say I'm sorry, Michael. That's I okay. Just think he's a lame character. That's okay. You know, uh, send send Michael some iTunes cards with some uh, Nickelback songs on it, and he'll be all happy. <laughs> he, he 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 was on last episode, and I had to rib him about. Well, I didn't rib him about Nickelback, but I did uh, put in a little Nickelback as underscoring for them. <laughs> so, so he he'll be certain to be excited. Excellent. But Emily, it is uh, yo. If I if I may say myself, you are an excellent podcaster. Uncovering the Bronze Age is one of those shows that you should definitely be listening to, simply because it's only got like what six episodes out so far. Five and a half. Five and a half. <laughs> so you can definitely get caught up on that. The one you did on the Comics Code was amazing. That was that was just a great great episode, and you you took a very fair approach to it. You didn't go in with the mindset of well the Comics Code is evil. And I, I I love the fact that you did that rather than, you know, just going off, well, Wortham is evil and the comics code is evil and I hate it all. You took mm-hmm. a, a very reasoned approach to it, and I commend you for doing that. Oh, thank you. I'm 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 glad that turned out well, because I was not entirely sure that was going to happen when I decided, yeah, I'm going to do like a, what, 85 minute episode and score the entire thing with Akira Yamaoka. I was like, oh, God, that's going to be like months of work. And then I was like, nah, I'm going to have like six people on and I'm going to do like sound effects and I'm going to do all this sort of. And I was just like, oh, God, the workload is just piling up. I really hope this is worth it. And it was empirically worth it. It actually sounded good. And then people have legit liked it, which has made me very excited. It so. it, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful show. Very informative, very well reasoned, very well thought out. Definitely something to go listen to, and not that not that saying that all the other stuff that you do on the relatively geeky podcast is you know not fun at all. Because I love the conversations you and your dad have on Shortbox Showcase. It's just it's a blast to listen to your shows. Yes, and we've we uh, we sat down and had a uh, a network meeting a couple of weeks ago and tried to figure out the next five or ten topics on Shortbox Showcase, and there is going to be some good stuff coming up. I can't wait. So well, all of all of those episodes can be found on relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, or you can actually find us on our Facebook page that we finally have. Great. We said we were going to get one of those like nine months ago, and now we have one. I've got to go make sure that I'm <clears throat> that I've liked that because I'm pretty sure you have. Okay. Well, Emily, again, thanks for coming on, and thank you everyone for downloading, listening. We will be back in seven days for another episode of Just One of the Guys, where we'll be covering, you guessed it, Greenlander number 151. Until then, everyone, thank you for listening, and have a good week. Bye. Bye, guys. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Inkle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books could be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. 
All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers, and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Two True Freaks Presents Just One of the Guys Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show there. You can search for me on Facebook as well, and now you can find me there, as it was a requirement of my new Demonza Core contract. But it doesn't mean that I'll be joining the little Candy Crush group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenland. The opening music for today's show was the song Perfect by the band A Simple Plan, off their album No Pad, No Helmets, Just Balls. Oh my. If you'd like to buy this album or buy any music from Simple Plan or any music from anyone, I would suggest you go to Amazon.com, the greatest place to find music, entertainment, games, and pretty much whatever anyone would like. But I would also suggest if you're going to Amazon.com, to please use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Whenever you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com, it'll direct you to Amazon.com, and any purchase you make there will shoot a little bit of money back to the website. You don't see any extra taken out of your account, but it really helps the 2TrueFreaks out. So anytime you're looking for music, whether it be music about balls, or anything else, make sure you use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com. Hello. Hello. Okay. Hi, Sean. Hey, oh, Professor. How's it going? Oh. Uh, Is he going to be bitter that he's not on the call? He just went away mumbling about that. Oh. Poor um, poopy pants. He, I've got him. I've got him scheduled for an episode coming up here in you know, a couple of weeks, doing the Green Lantern, Green Arrow thing. So. Yeah, he's he's recording with Michael tomorrow. I don't know what he's complaining about. Oh, oh. he's so unloved. I know. <laughs> Three, two, one, go. Okay, I'm recording I... in... This is weird. I'm recording in Audacity as well as recording on Skype Recorder because the Skype Recorder has been giving me problems with my audio. My audio has huh. been sounding really quiet and really diminished, and when I edit it in, I'm having to do a lot of you know, remixing and tweaking yeah. and stuff to try and get my audio on the level of the incoming audio. The incoming audio on the on the recording has been fine, but when it comes down to... Aha! Um, All right, sorry. The phone just rang. Oh, I okay. told Dad like two minutes ago. I was like, as soon as Sean <laughs> calls me, the phone is going to ring. I just know it. I know it's going to happen, and it did. Okay, but I'm recording... Uh, I'm recording with the Skype recorder, and I'm also recording in Audacity, and I'm hoping... I'll just be able to take the audio track from Audacity and sync it up with your audio track in uh, the Skype recorder and just do it just like do that. It. Okay. And for some reason, it's picking up – every once in a while, it's picking up my conversation on oh. Skype. Oh, well, it's well, no well. problem. I'll figure it out. Well, again, yeah. thanks for coming on the show, or the sh thanks for at least uh, 
saying that if I didn't invite you on the show, you'd beat people up. So that's always well, helpful. He, here's the thing is I figured I could probably take Shag. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've met him. I could take him. 